Hello and welcome to the Clustering Insights podcast. I'm Chris Walters, the head of UK Life Sciences at JLL. Today I'm joined by Toby Reid, the executive director at Pioneer Group. Uh, Toby, we've known each other a while now. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear more about you and your business. Uh, thank you very much for joining, first of all. How are you doing today? I'm really well, Chris. Yeah, thank, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Looking forward to it. No problem at all. Well, let's get stuck into the conversation. I think just to kick off with, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, could you perhaps give a bit of a background to Pioneer Group and a um, bit of the genesis of how that was formed between Trinity IM and, and BioCity Group, I think would be a great place to start. And then we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, great. Okay. All right. Um, so uh, I guess by way of intro, um, as you said, Toby Reed, uh, I'm one of the exec directors at Pioneer Group. Uh, I was formerly the group CEO at BioCity. Uh, and as you mentioned, Pioneer Group was formed um, principally as a merger between the Science Park arm of Trinity Investment Management, which was known as Knowledge Factory at the time, that were running five science parks, uh, five science parks in the UK, and BioCity, which is one of the longest standing incubators, accelerators and investors in uh, early stage life science companies. Uh, and we were operational at the time in four locations in the UK. And in April 21, so only, what are we now, 15, 16 months ago, uh, we had the coming together of the two operations, combining the sort of knowledge and expertise and contacts within the property world of Trinity Stroke uh, Knowledge Factory uh, with the life sciences and kind of biotech uh, expertise of, of BioCity to form Pioneer Group. And the um, you mentioned about the two different businesses, obviously, from your perspective, you know, have, being the chief executive of BioCity, sounds like you were very heavily involved in terms of working with those businesses right from, from the ground up, particularly on, on the operational side. Has that been one of the areas of, of focus in the business that you've continued to hold the pen on in this, in this new vehicle? Yeah, so, I mean, at BioCity, our focus is always to create an environment in which businesses are more likely to be successful. And so part of that offering, of course, is the physical infrastructure and real estate. But overlaid on that um, are kind of key activities of you know, delivering and, and establishing um, a connected ecosystems so that people can meet the right people that they need to, to improve their likelihood of success, but also structured interventions that we call venture building through a series of programs, again, to take some of the most promising opportunities and augment their chances of success um, through our through dedicated coaching, uh, investment and support, um, and that blueprint at, at BioCity is now sort of being rolled out across the Pioneer Group portfolio, but of course now it sits within a much larger property real estate portfolio, um, which means that now as a combined entity, we can really support high tech businesses and help them thrive from startup all the way through to large corporate in every stage of innovation from R&D, early stage R&D, all the way through to scale up formulation and late stage you know, or early stage manufacture or even manufacture product and service for, for consumption. So that, you know, it's a really exciting combination of, of, this, of the understanding the early stage and the helping and support companies combined with the property knowledge and expertise to provide the environment for companies on every stage of that innovation journey. Yeah, really interesting. I definitely want to dig a bit deeper around the venture building element that you described and 
particularly around how you provide support to companies without you obviously releasing all the trade secrets to anyone else that might be listening on the on the podcast in terms of the competition but i think that is certainly interesting but perhaps zooming um a bit further out you know the the phrase the knowledge economy the innovation ecosystem is obviously discussed a lot in this sector in in our respective circles how do you define a successful innovation ecosystem or in a successful uh, cluster what does that mean to you and and the pioneer group that's a really good question. I suppose if you sort of break down innovation ecosystem into you know definition of those two words, innovation for me is all about new products, new services or new ways of operating that provide improved efficiency and or economic growth. Uh, and an ecosystem is a community of interacting uh, organisms or in this instance, organisations and their physical environment. Uh, and so you put the two together, the aim is to create an environment in which more innovations, i.e. products, services and new ways of doing things, come about, get commercialised and make it to market. Um, and so you know, that's kind of a definition of an innovation ecosystem. And then how you curate, facilitate, um, encourage, sustain and grow one um, is by and large down to the interventions that you make within a, within a physical um, within a physical setting and so um, we do a lot of activity in that area um, to try to bring together the key actors that might um, stimulate trigger um, innovation might support or invest in and help grow innovation but and also might help bring innovation to market um, so we do a lot to stimulate the interactivity and connectivity between those key actors and then we do a lot to make sure that 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 physical environment is the right environment to sit to support those innovative companies bringing those innovations to market. I think it's really interesting. Well, thank thank you for that, Toby. I think it's a really interesting point around um, how you can provide the right support network, the right operational um, platform to support these companies. And then you know, just from the way that you're talking, it feels like the real estate solution falls out the back of that. So if you can provide those right interventions and you can work with those companies, then um, you get a better understanding perhaps of what they need in terms of the the end product in terms of the type of building and you can you can cater for it accordingly which is I think that the whole operational piece of this sector is is so fundamental um, and do you feel that that's sort of important across all stages of a company company's life cycle or is it more you know, more keenly felt and required at the sort of the early stage, you know, when companies are being formed rather than at the late stage when they might be standing on their own two feet a bit more? So it's certainly, it's certainly harder for early stage companies to create their own physical infrastructure. Um, and so, yes, you could argue that the importance, that the kind of importance to their survival of providing the physical infrastructure, the labs and some of the support services that support their activities within the labs is of, is of, is of more important to the early stage community. That said, um, even large corporates like to be part of a successful cluster because it helps attract and retain talent. It helps employee satisfa satisfaction, but it also helps being close to the innovative companies that are doing interesting things because as a large corporate or as a large entity, you're going to have your own requirements for in licensing and bringing in new innovation 
for working alongside innovative companies because not every new innovation that you're going to bring to the market is going to come from your own internal resources. And so we also see that a lot of larger companies like to be co-located alongside these innovative activities because it it helps with employee motivation. It also helps within licensing, bringing in new innovations into their companies as well. Yeah, makes sense. And um, um, another theme just to explore with you before we get into the sort of the the program element which i promised we would do but just while we're on the on the topic of sort of broader innovation ecosystems and, and clusters um your combined portfolio now is is certainly spread all across the uk i think in a positive way which gives you exposure to multiple different markets and one of the things we're seeing from a global trend um perspective is a movement towards more urban environments where innovation and R&D takes place and obviously a number of your schemes are not in sort of right in the heart of a city centre urban environment has that presented challenges for you do you think in in terms of attracting talent or companies or are they sort of self-fulfilling ecosystems in their own right and actually the urban out of town you know do you need to be one side or the other isn't really that relevant if you've got the right type of structure in place i think the short answer is probably the latter um i mean we as you say we've got you know in nottingham uh, bio city nottingham is a city center location in in um in the, the wilton center in darlington is is a you know and and colworth science park and and edinburgh technopole are more kind of out of town science park um locations yeah and there are pros and cons to both you know you've at the, at the city centre ones, people complain about the lack of parking, and and the, and the science parks in the outer town, people complain about the lack of public transport connectivity. You know, there's always going to be issues with wherever you deliver your activity and wherever you have your property. What we have found though is if you just go back to brass tacks and try to create that environment in which companies are more likely to be successful, and if you start every conversation with a potential new tenant along the lines of how can we help your business. Then the conversations around car parking, public transport connectivity, pound per square foot get relegated and are less important. Um, So it's not straightforward and it's not easy. And there are definitely locations where it's easier to attract and grow tenants um, and fill buildings. But I still think you can do it in most locations if you go about it in the right way. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And so touching on on the programs element and sort of the the interventions venture building um that you met that you mentioned earlier how and obviously you've been doing this for a number of years and you've been doing it before the pioneer group world you've been working with the biocity business um for a number of years how important has that programming element been do you think to the success of biocity and now what you're able to offer to to occupiers and businesses under the pioneer group brand it's been massively important and i think a lot of people have come to the same conclusion you know as us or as we did a number of years ago that you can't just build it and open the front doors and it will it will fill up of its own accord i mean that you know in in certain hotspot locations that is the case right the supply and demand is such at the moment that you can build it put it up and it will fill um but we feel that if you get the 
company creation and early stage support bit right, then you are effectively creating your own future tenant pipeline, your own future demand for space, and it gives you much greater resilience um, in terms of an operator and an ability to build and, and, and occupy and fill out um, successful um, sites and locations um, than if you were just playing the supply and demand game the whole time, right? Um, and, and that will come and go. And obviously, at the moment, you know, demand is far outstripping supply, in particular in the hotspots. A whole load of space is going to get built. Um, but we feel our resilience is in part based on our ability to be able to generate our own demand for space based on the homegrown opportunities that we can help get started help accelerate uh, and and in time we know that they will be the major occupiers of the sites in the future i think the 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 point you're making around sort of generating your own demand is um very well naturally valuable in terms of creating investment return on on any opportunities but i think what's just to draw some parallels in terms of what we're seeing um in other clusters across well, in clusters across the UK or even opportunities in Europe, I think being able to engage with with companies, um, providing that providing them with support, understanding what they need, does create demand. Whereas in some markets where there isn't that transparency on market data or leasing transactions, because these companies haven't been represented by an agent, or currently they're all sitting in academic run or publicly sector run incubator type environments there is certainly a i think a narrative and an opportunity around creating clusters by engaging with these companies and then you get a much better understanding of what that potential demand could be and you're then able to deliver the product in more mature markets as you're saying there is this a named requirement lists of you know million square feet in cambridge and over a million in in oxford as we're tracking today and there's severe lack of of space being delivered but when you start looking at those other clusters in the uk or europe you need to be um prepared to sort of create the market um, a bit more and start from scratch so i think the operational piece becomes even more valuable in in markets like that and and it also chris gives you so so yes it helps you to predict demand but it also helps you to predict type of demand as well so you know we worked with technologies from 26 different universities over the last 18 months you know we deliver a lot of the commercialization support uh, in partnership with innovate uk you know we get a, a lot of early insight into what type of companies are now coming out where are the technologies what's the potential solutions of the future um, and therefore what sort of space are they going to need not now but in five years from now you know are there, is it going to be just pure kind of biology labs is there going to be an element still of small molecule and therefore medicinal chemistry or you know perhaps more dramatically you know a lot of what we're seeing might be moving now into kind of more industrial biotech um, rather than you know biotech within healthcare and therefore you know the scale-up space might look dramatically different well you know not only can you look with some degree of certainty at future demand you can look at the type of space that that demand might require as well rather than crossing your fingers building it and hoping it hoping it will be there and obviously these buildings are longer than than are around for longer than five years so i mean one of the common questions we'll get and i'm sure you think about internally is how do you build in the ultimate flexibility to your real estate um when you're 
delivering space in a market which is changing at pace and the type of science and the type of R&D and, and technologies that are driving it is is shifting and um, obviously everything can't be built with five meter slab to slabs because it just doesn't work um, economically so it's definitely food for thought um, one of the things that you touched on just changing tact a little bit one of the things you touched on um, or sort of mentioned earlier was around affordability and I think you know we've cert- we certainly get a lot of inbound questions around affordability in the, in this sector. How important is it um, to companies? One of the questions that I had for you just on this topic is from when you're engaging with occupiers, how important is the um, the rent that might be charged in comparison to some of the other factors that they're considering around? the location, the building product, the support services, et cetera. Where, where do you feel that it sits in the, in the hierarchy of decision-making for businesses that you engage with? I think it probably varies um, by both time and company type. Um, I think it's rarely the most important factor for them. Um, but where it sits, you know, in the top five or ten will depend a little bit on what stage they're at and, and what area they're in. So... What do I mean by that? Um, well, if you're an early stage company, if you think you can go somewhere that's going to significantly enhance your chances of raising money, then um, then you're probably willing, you know, to pay the premium that you need to pay to get access to raise that money because it's a kind of it's a fairly binary outcome, right? If you don't raise the money, you don't really have a business anyway. So. Um, so if, if there's a genuine ability to impact on companies' abilities to raise finance, then I think the, the kind of cost sensitivity is pretty low. Um, I also think immediately after raising a big slug of money, the cost sensitivity is, is fairly low. Um, however, there will be other companies that are a bit more established and perhaps not you know, pure IP-based uh, IP venture, you know, IP venture capital-backed opportunities more like the kind of contract research organisations that are more, um, that their growth is more linear and their, and their economics is more um, a multiple of full-time employee and, and operational expenditure and therefore, you know, what they pay on rent does impact their profitability and their success in the future. And so they will be more more sensitive to it and will look at it more keenly, especially at a later stage as their footprint is ever expanding and they're taking on more and more space. So so I think it depends on, by and large, in terms of your company type and your 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 time in the journey or your particular turn, your stage in the journey. But I will still think ability to attract and retain talent probably comes far above the cost of the facilities and the infrastructure. And so you do, you know, which is why London and the South East, you know, the Golden Triangle is so successful is because people perceive that as the place to go and get the talent they need to be able to deliver on the business plans that they've they've set themselves. Um, and so I would, you know, I still think, although, you know, rent becomes important, um, access to talent probably trumps it still at the moment. Makes complete sense and certainly echoes what we've um, been hearing when we speak to our colleagues um, particularly in the States when they're engaging with occupiers and, and the team here. So um, another theme just, just to touch on was was you mentioned venture capital and how these some of these companies or majority of these companies are linked to funding rounds in terms of achieving the next phase of their growth. 
one of the things that has been reported as sort of like at the global perspective, and you can see it happening quite clearly in the US market, is around the fall in venture capital or reduction in venture capital, particularly when you compare that to what was achieved last year in, in 2021. Um, we... You know, we've looked at the numbers here in the UK at, at JLL. We've we can see that the volume of VC going into the sector isn't on track for what it was in in twenty one, but it certainly is on track for what we had in twenty twenty, which we can't forget was a standout year. You know, it was ten times higher than uh, figures raised at the beginning of um, you know about ten years ago. So, um, the question I wanted to ask is, what's your What's your reaction? What's the discussion that you're having internally about that drop in in VC that you're seeing in a, from a global perspective and and in the UK? Is that sort of s- sending alarm bells internally, or are you thinking this is a a short term blip correction compared to some of the sky high numbers that we saw last year in in twenty one? Probably the latter again. Uh, so. I mean, venture capital, I mean, as you say, it's already increased like, exponentially over the last five years. Um, and that sort of mirrors what we've seen in the US for the last 10, 15 years. Um, and that is, by and large, as a result of a large amount of innovation now taking place in startups and spin-outs rather than within large pharma. So, you know, previously... A lot of the new medicines, therapeutics, diagnostics, medical devices that made it to market were developed in-house in large pharma. We've had a period now of 15, 20 years where there's a third kind of route now. You know, if, you're on, if you're in academia and you've done a postgraduate, you, you know, previously you could either um, go and join large corporate, large pharma, or you could stay in academia. Well, the third route now is you can you follow an entrepreneurial route and join a startup. And, and that's been... Yeah, that has been a real boon um, for the number of spin-outs and therefore the number of venture capital flowing into it. Uh, and of course, if people are successful with venture capital investments, then they will stick to what they know and they'll come back around and in, raise larger funds and invest more in that space. So that's kind of what's happened to date. Um, and I don't see any of that changing. Typically, and uh, this isn't my chosen specialist subject, but typically I think venture capital deployed is normally tampered by the view of the public markets and the ability or people's view of whether you can do an IPO at some stage in the future because as a venture capitalist you get your money back either when it's sold as a corporate sale or listed typically Um, and if you're worried about listing as one of only two exits then it can sort of dampen your appetite slightly for investing at that time and so I think it's probably as a result of where we are with the public markets at the moment. That's, of course, always cyclical. Um, so I think that will come back again and that some of those concerns will go away and we'll see that that growth within venture capital into this space increasing. And I think now that the cat's out the bag and there is this other route to deliver innovation to market, which is a combination of startups and venture capital, you know, that's not that's not going away. And if you think about the two areas that we are in, one is healthcare. So, you know, life sciences solutions to healthcare problems. Well, we're, you know, the aging population, the increasing or the percentage of developing 
um, or percentage of the world that's developing countries and therefore increasingly affluent that have got an aging population all just points to greater demand and therefore greater opportunity. And the other area we're in is using life sciences to tackle planetary health issues, you know. So whether it's difficult to recycle plastics, whether it's using fermentation or gas fermentation to convert waste product into something useful or capture carbon or whatever it happens to be, you know, that's another massive boon area. And so these are two major long-term growth areas that will get serviced by the life sciences sector. And so that's a long way of saying, yeah, I think it's the second half of your question. It's the latter. It was, it's a, it's a slight plateauing out, but it will increase again in the future because of the macroeconomics and the bigger picture stuff that just isn't going to go anywhere. Yeah, very useful. I think, as you said, the long-term fundamentals for this sector aren't changing. You know, the, the, the first thing that we, we look at um, in terms of what's driving the sector around ageing population, the need for more drugs, etc. You know, they, they are only going one direction. And I think one of the things that we've seen um, in the US market, one of my colleagues was on a, a panel session recently um, in Boston talking about, yes, there is a sort of re-evaluation for some of the companies that have got VC funding in terms of what their their burn rate is in terms of spending the dollars they've raised on R&D but there is still a market from for from VC funds to go into into these companies and in addition there seems to be a a rebound of big pharma coming into the market um, taking physical space in terms of um, out of the real estate market. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays through in the UK. We certainly haven't seen any drop in known active demand um, in the UK markets, particularly the, the, sort of the most mature ones that we're tracking in Cambridge, Oxford and London. Whether some of the um, drop in demand that has been experienced in some of the markets in the States actually lands here in the UK in a, in a meaningful way by the time the market as you said, is a cyclical thing, may come back or hopefully will come back sooner rather than later in terms of the opening of the NASDAQ, etc. So there is that other route to exit for these companies. I think that's the one, that's the theme to watch and something that we're certainly thinking about um, as a house. But we're certainly seeing more M&A activity, I think, from these companies where, yes, as you said, the the public, uh, the IPO route might be um, temporarily shut for the time being on the Nasdaq, but actually, big pharma still needs to deploy capital, still needs to undertake R and D, still wants to partner with these organisations, and therefore, for a talent-rich um, nation like the UK, that's a great. You know, we're still in a great place to to benefit from that, and hopefully, sort of weather the short-term storm and and come out the other end stronger. And that that for me, from from my perspective and our perspective, is probably. Yeah, you know, it's an important thing to have in the back of your mind, isn't it? Yeah, it it, it is, and I and again, you know, I, I you could even argue that it's no bad thing to have this every once in a while because it just sort of readjusts people's expectation around valuations. Um, it just sort of makes people a bit more judicious with where they spend the money that they've raised, rather than just assuming they can raise another massive round, you know, twelve months later. Um, and I, 
and given where we are in terms of supply and demand within space, I don't think it will it will change the demand. And you said you haven't seen any evidence of it. I don't think it will change the demand for space. It might mean that people grow slightly slower or interrogate their cost base a little bit more. Um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because otherwise you just end up with a very frothy market that's you know that's overheating. Um, so it's probably necessary every once in a while just to keep the growth at a manageable level to have that kind of plateauing slightly in terms of activity. And your perhaps a sort of final question to to finish on in terms of thinking about the UK um, as a you know as a um, number of clusters which have been very successful, some of them more mature than others. You know, we've named Cambridge, Oxford, and London in particular. But I assume you are still have absolute conviction in terms of how the UK market, in terms of it being a science and tech um, um, sort of superpower, can continue to go from strength to strength to strength and sort of play on the global stage. I certainly, yes, I do. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's. It's not. It's not a completely. Um, it, it's not. It, it's not without its challenges. Um, I look at the impact of Brexit on UK's universities' ability to collaborate and take part in um, research projects with universities across Europe, and, you'll, and, and, and they are struggling with that at the moment. So there will be a question mark around, not in the next few years, but you know, in 10, 5, 10, 15 years from now, how do the UK universities continue to be relevant, connected, involved in the most exciting projects, de- developing the best technologies, because they don't do it in isolation. They do it in partnership with universities from across Europe. And so, and because we haven't got the same source and access to funding anymore, I think a lot of universities are getting, aren't getting included in bids for funding that, you know, consortia of, of European universities are putting together. And so that, that is a, that's something to keep an eye on and it's a concern. And the UK government hasn't really explained how we're going to backfill that in terms of A, funding, and B, opening up the ability to collaborate with those um, those European universities again. So, you know, so that is, that's something, that, that's something of a challenge. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, I, I hate to say it, and I hate to, um, to use political catchphrases, um, especially on a property podcast. Um, but the whole levelling up agenda is kind of, you know, hasn't really delivered, isn't anything yet other than a bit of a talking shop. And and the concern again is that, so London, South East, Golden Triangle, super exciting, super hot, um, their own now kind of self-sustaining ecosystems that will continue to create new opportunities in the future based and, and not reliant on the universities for doing so, by the way, either, just because of the number of serial entrepreneurs, the amount of money available, you know, all of that sort of good stuff. But it needs to translate across the rest of the UK as well, because 70% of the research is done outside of London and the southeast. Uh, and so, you know, arguably, there's huge untapped potential there. And, you know, we've we've done, we'd like to think, a pretty good job of serving that market by effectively each of our sites creating little, you know, mini Cambridges. So if you think about what a successful cluster is, it's connectivity, or access to talent, access to finance, and then connectivity to influencers within industry that can accelerate your opportunities and, and accelerate your growth. Well, 
we sort of, you know, we aim to provide that at each of our satellite locations around the UK. And we've worked, as I mentioned earlier on, with 26 different universities, by and large, all outside of London and the southeast. Um, but And we're not a single actor in that regard, but there aren't, you know, there isn't the same focus on those areas outside of London and the southeast. And so if we genuinely want to stand alone as the UK as a science superpower, as you know, as everybody is touting at the moment, that has to spread around the whole of the UK and it has to be done far more equitably and it has to allow for clusters to develop and continue to establish themselves outside of London and the South East because you know, there are certain economics within London and the South East that are just going to make it impossible for talent to cluster there much more. Um, so and that's that's not a foregone conclusion that that leveling up will happen so i think those are probably the two the two things to keep an eye on is is how do we do leveling up uh, and how do we make sure that uk universities remain at the forefront moving forwards and those are you know not um insignificant challenges no and really important things to to consider we've We've certainly talked um, about the levelling up agenda and how we can think about the UK as a whole. I, I agree with you. I think it's important that we invest across the whole of the UK, particularly out of the southeast, but also ensuring that we do that in a way that isn't to the detriment of all of the successful clustering and companies that we have in the southeast. It has to be, it has to be a one-stop uh, shop sort of solution, and we we're thinking about everyone on um, together. Thank you very much. Um, Toby for your time really enjoyed the conversation I hope for those that have tuned in have have done the same so thank you my pleasure it's great to chat as always mm-hmm.